Nehemiah chapter 4. I, there's so much to read, but I've, I thought maybe just a handful of verses might help us today. Verse 1. Are you ready? But it came to pass that when Sanbala heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth. He took great indignation, mocked the Jews. He spake before his brethren and the army of Samaria, and he said, What do these feeble Jews, what are they doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice or make a sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? He's got a sidekick, Tobiah. And Tobiah the Ammonite was by him. Do you ever notice that the accuser always have someone that affirms him? You ever notice that the negative person always has a backup? You know those people travel in packs. Mm -hmm. And Tobiah was by him. He said, even that which they build, if a fox go up. I don't really know what a fox says. I didn't made that up. I don't know. They made that up. That, that's not what he says. <clears throat> I'm just trying to get in touch with the younger generation here, just relating. But I do know that the fox is sure-footed. He's light-footed. He's careful. In fact... Because he's not the size of the coyote and far less than the wolf. Yet he, he considers the same prey as the larger of those species. His craft is to sneak up and not make a sound. And he can balance his weight from front to back, right to left. So that he can step on things very uh, carefully without making them crumble and fall. Whereas the others are too heavy and their skill is not in balance to distribute their weight. And Tobiah is making a reference that the walls are so weak that even the fox who can balance himself and distribute his weight, even if his sure-footedness gets on that wall, it'll all come down. He'll break down their stone wall. I have a word from the Lord. I don't really do. And I don't say it flippantly or lightly or as the turning of a phrase. But for one or for all, it really makes no difference for somebody. But probably for anyone who would receive it, I preach and end in a day. Amen. I pray this in Jesus' name. 
Help us to block out every thought in our mind that would wage war against the planted seed of your word. I pray today for a focus and an opening of a window so that we could see and be assured of the plan of God in our life. I pray for everyone who has walked in here, Lord, that you would draw them by your spirit and let them know you are the God, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, and there's none like you, and you are going to complete what you started in the lives of the people in this house. And I pray it in Jesus' name, and someone speak his name. Out of your mouth, someone call out his name. Ah. Yes. If you'll put your Bibles down behind you and you'll clap unto the Lord and out of your mouth would you just call out unto God. Thank you for standing. As sure as I'm standing in this house, speaking to all of you, there lurks another voice. And that other voice always hides in the shadow of truth. It comes in various forms and from unsuspecting sources. The tempter is about, and he is distinct. The accuser is afoot also, and he or they are unrelenting. The doubter comes. The doubter comes and goes to attack and then to retreat, recoiling, always spouting off obvious obstacles and human limitations. All of them seem to weigh against the plan of God and the path of God's people. I know this. I felt it in my own spirit. Peter and John walked into the temple in Acts 6, Acts 3 rather, and raised up a known lame man who sat at the gate called Beautiful. And the thanks they received was a scolding from the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin council. Paul and Silas loosed a young girl possessed with a demonic spirit of divination and her handlers cried out, these men being Jews, they said, do exceedingly trouble our city. Jesus himself set the maniac from Gadara free, sending a legion of demons into 2,000 swine. Not everyone was pleased with the liberation of the bound man. The man who is described as always living in the tombs, crying, cutting himself with stones, tormenting the people, was released from that bondage. But when he was set free and was found sitting and clothed and in his right mind, the merchants saw the cost of his deliverance. And the Bible says they began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. 
And I stand here to say that when you take steps toward God or you seek to accomplish something for the sake of the kingdom, there will always be resistance. Not everyone is happy when someone is set free. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. In fact, not everyone is happy, happy about what's going on in this house right now. All right. Our adversary and false brethren join in echoing doubt, accusations, and the lie. Paul dealt with false brethren as they attempted to confuse the church and cast condemnation on Titus. The Bible said, Paul Paul said, and that because of false brethren unaware is brought in who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. They were false brethren. That wasn't the only time. In fact, in the litany of Paul's autobiography of suffering, he adds this line. He said, I was in journeys and perils of water and robbers and perils of my own countrymen and perils, dangers of the heathen, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, in the sea, and watch this, and among false brethren. Surely I don't have to spend time there. That there are people who do not want you to be saved. They don't want the church to exist. And they certainly don't want the saints of God to be effective in their walk with God. And I also should not have to spend too much time convincing the church that the devil is our adversary. He is a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. Jesus said this in John 10. The thief cometh not but to steal and to kill and to destroy. Just the fact that you came in this house of worship and lifted up your hands and made a step to enter with praise and thanksgiving was enough to garnish the attention of our adversary and all the forces of darkness. And if the word is true that the Lord indeed inhabits the praises of his people, then every time you and I give him praise, we are not only building a place for the Lord to dwell, but we are attacking the forces of the enemy of hell itself. Every time you lift your hands and clap your hands. Every time you praise God with your lips. You're doing something. You're bringing the Lord in. It may not look like hammers and nails and boards and walls and furnishings and doors and windows. But there is a spiritual function taking place when we come together to praise the Lord. We are builders of a spiritual house. We are raising a banner of praise. We are worshipers of the Most High God. We are setting up a tabernacle of praise in the house of worship. Many of us know this, but I did not want to make an assumption that everybody knows. I just want to say it again. Just pause and say it again. When you praise the Lord, you are inviting the master to come and live where you are. When you praise him, you are creating space for him to occupy. Your praise is his allowance to be who he already is, who he has always been, and who he shall always be. When I lift up my hands, I'm building space for God to come. I hope no one thought we were just trying to get to the song set and sing three songs so we could get to prayer. What we were doing was trying to build a house for the Lord to dwell. We were trying to get our spirits in line with his spirit and create an allowance for the Lord. I tell you that praise and worship not only makes us look good to the Lord, but those things are, are our human response recognizing the omnipotent God. 
I hope someone will hear this in this place today. Because the Lord spoke to me this week. He implanted these thoughts in my mind and I wrote them down. I wrote them down. Tell the people to stop complaining about what they don't have and start praising about what they do have. I felt it in my spirit, elders. Tell the people, don't don't stop complaining about what's not right. Start praising about what has been and what is right now. I wrote another line down. It was in my spirit. Tell the people that when they worship me for who I am, then I am able to reveal myself to them in the form of their recognition of me. I wrote it down because the Lord put it in my heart. I got one more. Tell the people. That there will always be resistance to their pursuit of righteousness. But I will sustain them and I will complete the work that I have begun in them. Uh, I'm asking you today. Would you find it odd for the football fans that are going to gather in the afternoon and the evening to shout out and paint their faces and wear costumes for a 100-yard football field? But you find it odd. You don't, you, you, you don't find it odd there, but you find it odd here. I say it should be odd there, and it should be right here that the praises of God are released and known among the people. Let me tell you something, brother. The Lord knows exactly what's going on in your life. He knows exactly what you're struggling with. He knows your doubt. He knows the mountains that you are facing. But I'm asking the people, is there anything too hard for God? He knows what you're battling, but there is nothing too hard for God. Here's the word. Jeremiah 32. Then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord. Somebody said, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Come on, the church ought to answer, Is there anything too hard for God? Right before that, Jeremiah said, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arms, and there is nothing too hard for thee. In Genesis 18, 13, Abraham and God was having a conversation, and the Lord said to Abraham, Wherefore, why? did Sarah laugh I know how old she is I know it's impossible for her to have a child shall I of a surety bear a child am I old is there anything too hard for the Lord at the appointed time I'm going to give you something you could not give yourself I know you're incapable but there's nothing too hard for God you ought to reply there is nothing too hard for God I battled it in my mind. I battled it in my spirit because I've had an accusation and I've had a lie. I've had an adversary and I've had the devil on me and I've had false witnesses and I've had the world and I've had carnality against me and I've had society against me. But I got to stand up and say, nothing's too hard for God. I wonder if I have a witness in here today. You got a mountain in your life. You just say it right now. That mountain, whatever it looks like, it's not too hard for my God. It's not too big for my God. 
Let me tell you, Dan, it's not too big for God. Illness is not too hard for God. Come on, let's do it right now. Let's let's do it. Let, wait, wait, let's do it. You 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 got the people who who are in college wanting to be a doctor, but they're struggling with English 101. You got the people who've graduated from four years degree, but they haven't gotten into med school because they can't pass the MCAT. You got Dr. Phil, and he lost his license. You got Dr. Laura, she never was a doctor. I'd rather go to Dr. J. <laughs> then you got doctors that practice, and they are practicing on you. Because they perfected nothing. And if they were all the same, they wouldn't, they wouldn't advise you not to go to them, but go to somewhere else. Then you step up to the specialist. Thank God for the specialist. Mm -hmm. And then you go to the elite, like, like the Anderson Hospital in Texas or the Mayo Clinic. And you don't just get the specialists, you get the refined men and women that actually know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And when you reach the top of the top, you're still a far distance away from the great physician. He's not practicing on you. He knows everything about you. He formed you. He created you. He knows what you're in and he knows how to get you out. Yay. <laughs> All right. I'd just like to tell you about Nehemiah for a moment. And the season of Nehemiah's life. Because he's in a season. It's a time. It's a season. And just for our sake. People were in Jerusalem. But they disobeyed. And then God allowed the enemy to come. Destroy the city. And in this particular time. In the history of Israel, many of those people have been taken captive into Babylon. They've been exiled. And most of them are gone now. There's a trickling back of people. And it's not like Egypt. The second captivity is different from the first captivity. Because in the second captivity, the Persian king allows them to worship. They're still in bondage, but they can have a little worship. Whereas in Egypt, they're not allowed to worship at all. So in Babylon, Babylon they, are, they are making concessions. And the people now that have been exiled from Jerusalem, some of them have returned. And they've built up again the temple. And yet the walls around the city have been broken down. There are breaches and holes and the gates are fallen. The hinge has been dislodged from its place, which becomes a microcosm of the spiritual welfare of all the people. Dislodged. A city without walls is like a life without holiness. The hinge 
was not held and in place. Whatever vagabond was to come in, wander aimlessly in and out. People without boundaries in their life are always afflicted by every wind of doctrine carried about. The newest fad becomes their desire. Jerusalem is like that. It's defenseless. It is vulnerable on every side. There is no resistance, no protection, no ramparts to keep them safe. And Nehemiah sees the tumult. It's a clamor of the adversary who can enter the city without constraint. He comes and goes. False gods are carried through the openings of unhinged gates. Idol worship and vain philosophies have no obstacles to stop them. And Nehemiah is a prophet. And he's in Babylon. He offers a formal request to the king of Persia to, to return to Jerusalem, to rebuild the broken down walls. King Artaxerxes, who not only gives him permission, but supplies him with the means to accomplish the mission. Letters to Asaph. Keepers of the king's forest, timber for beams and supplies for the citadels to be rebuilt and provisions for the workers. It's all in his hands, Nehemiah has it. Nehemiah is not foolish in his approach, however. He knows the condition of the once former holy city. He knows the reproach levied against the valley gate and the fountain gate and the dung gate, the sheep gate, the king's pool where the water was. And then he'll speak it with clarity to the people. Jerusalem lieth in waste. The temple is there, but there's no conviction in the hearts of the men who sacrifice in the temple. And he says it. You see the distress that we're in. How Jerusalem lies in waste. The gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, let's build up the wall of Jerusalem so there's no more reproach. It's a good thing. He has a great desire to do good, to live right. The desire and the work of Nehemiah is a good thing, but no good thing has ever been done for the Lord without an answer by the adversary or by false brethren. One or both will always come to call. And watch what happens. Nehemiah is resisted by false accusations and doubt in men with ill will. Sambalah and Tobiah. They are talkers. They're big talkers. They mouth off. They cast dispersions. They seek to disrupt the flow of the worker. They say that Nehemiah is full of pride. You're just trying to make a name for yourself. You're just trying to do something for self-glorification. They say that nothing's going to come of your efforts. It's all going to fall. Sambalah was the governor of Samaria and come to find out he was hoping to take over Judea as well. He wants to consume the entire area and watch this now. The best way for him to own the city, Jerusalem, the temple, the land is for Nehemiah to fail. Sambalah knows that if the temple worship is protected, if the sacrifice becomes set apart, holy and distinct, then there's no chance of him advancing against them. And Sambalah knows that the rebuilt walls and hinged gates will give the temple the necessary protection from false gods and from vain philosophies. He wins if the walls that are broken down are rebuilt. A rebuilt temple means nothing, ladies and gentlemen, if there are no walls to protect it. Principles, concepts, convictions, disciplines. All worship, hear me now, all worship is not the same. And Sambalah can ill afford to see walls rebuilt and gates rehung. 
He knows that the moment the hinge is put in place on the outside, something is going to change in the inside. Not, it may not be what you learn that matters in your life. It might also be what you do not learn that will make the difference. It might not just be what you hear or see that changes your life. It might also be what you're kept from seeing or hearing that saves you. Oh my. We're not only saved by the cross and through the blood. We're saved to the Lord and saved from the world. The walls are the keeping of the city. They speak of uniformity. They talk of inclusion, not just of exclusion. That means they allow people to come inside. Without walls on the outside, there's no city on the inside. But to rebuild takes courage. You have to wade through threats and negative spirits and oppressive things. We've been wading through a society that is opposed to our core beliefs. The church which Jesus came to build is bigger than the divisions of our society and it's greater than cultural differences. Here's Galatians 3. For ye all are the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Oh. What? Everybody? You telling me Jesus came to build a church for everybody? Not just the bond, not just the free, not just the Jews, not just for the Gentiles? Really? Don't you know that what we're doing in this house is an outlier because the world does not think it should or could or can happen? I'm going to tell you right now, when I walked into the city, I was told you're never going to have a church like that. They told me when I walked in the city, it's already been tried and it's failed many, many times. But I want to tell you, I don't receive that negative spirit because the last time I looked, it wasn't black or white. It wasn't brown or red. It was everybody's robe was going to be washed in the blood of the lamb. It wasn't cultural differences that was going to make it. It wasn't you or me. It wasn't height. It wasn't... The last time I looked, everybody who's going to go to heaven is going to go to one heaven. We're going to worship one God. There's going to be a church. And I don't care what anyone says. It's not a black church. It's not a white church. It's not a Mexican church. It's not a Spanish church. It is the church of Jesus Christ. I don't know what Dr. King had in mind. I don't know the extent of what he had in mind, but I'm thinking this is what he was talking about. He was talking about a body of people that love one another. I'm thinking in my spirit that Jesus came for everybody. 
Don't you know right now, not everybody's happy about what we're doing in this house. Not everyone's happy that we're loving and hugging and respecting and honoring everyone. But I want to rise up and say, Sambalai and Tobiah might come, but they're going to make no difference to the kingdom of God because we're going ahead and I'm not going to listen to them. Here's the big question they asked me, Mother. You think you're going to get that done in the time of your ministry? You think you can accomplish that in your ministry? I said to them, I'm just after people. What kind of people? Any kind of people. All the people. All the up and outers and down and outers. All the highly educated and the people that are illiterate. I'm after all the people. I'm after the tall people and the skinny people. I'm after the short people. And the thinly challenged people. <laughs> if you're thin challenged, I'm after you too. I'm after everybody. I'm not, I'm gonna tell you what I'm looking at. I'm looking at the body. I'm looking at the bride. I'm looking at the blood bought child of the most high God. I'm building up a city. I'm building up a worship. I'm praying for holy sacrifices before God. Hey! Hey! I gotta stand up and say it! In the scripture, it looks like Sambala asked five questions, but it's really the same question. Don't get confused and try to parse out the questions. It's just really one question. He spake before the brethren. What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to fortify themselves? Are they going to make a sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones that are in heaps of rubbish? Everything's burned? I'll just pick one of those because it's the whole. Will they make an end in a day? Can they finish what they have begun? Can they stay together? All this rubble, all the mess, stones lying for decades, heaps of rubble untouched, nobody cares. Everything's individed. Will they make an end in a day? Hear the question correctly, ladies and gentlemen. It comes from ungenerated men. It comes in the form of an accusation. It's doubt at its deepest level. It implies pride in the motive of Nehemiah. It denotes a lack of planning and effort. And most of all, it removes the hand and the blessing of God. I hope you can hear this now. See, the questions against you are never going to stop. Don't look for the accuser or the tempter or the doubter to give you a break. As long as you're making an effort to work for the Lord or to live for the Lord or to do something for the kingdom, there will always be opposition. But the question might also open a door for God to do the miraculous. Yes, he can make an end in a day. That means before you get home, he can solve the thing that you've been battling with for years. He can make an end in a day. In fact, before this day is done, before you lay your head on the pillow tonight, the very thing that you've been battling with that you don't think you could ever get over, he can make an end in a day. You didn't know it, but God can solve a problem by the blink of his eye and the word of his mouth. He can remove mountains. In the end of a day. Uh huh. How are we doing? Are we doing all right today? Are we doing? Are we doing all right? I, pardon me if I'm a little excited. I've had caffeine. That's it. Just caffeine. 
Amen. In fact, I've had several cups of caffeine. That's all. <laughs> I'll get back to the other portion, but right now it's just caffeine. Kind of sends you up, you know. You get up there, and then you get up there. To, now the fall, the fall is hard. It's just done, you know. I know. I wonder what people think, you know, and just sitting there watching me do all this stuff. You know, well, he got a little excited today. That little guy, he gets excited up there. I don't know what he's doing. Somebody needs to take that cup of coffee away from him in the morning. I just got to tell you about the Lord. I want to tell you what the Lord can do. He can make an end in a day. You mean those stones that have sat there for years? The unhinged gates? You mean all the mess? Asaph is going to write a psalm. They weren't all written by David. I feel compelled to tell you what he wrote. Because Asaph is going to write about the history of the people. I read from the NIV for, for a few words that I think we need to know. Oh, my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from our children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children so the next generation would know them. Even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children it's a generational law. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget the deeds, but would keep his commandments. Why? Because mom was telling sons and sons was telling their daughters and their daughters were telling their sons and daughters. They would not be like their forefathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. The men of Ephraim, for example. Though armed with bows, though they were fully equipped... They turned their back on the, on, the, on, the, on the war. In the day of battle, they walked away. They did not keep God's covenant. And they refused to live by his law. They forgot what he had done and the wonders he had showed them. Asaph says, he did miracles in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt in the region of Zoan. He divided the sea and led them through. He made the water stand firm like a wall. But there's always someone complaining, doubters and accusers in the crowd. He guided them with the cloud by day and with light from the fire all night. He split the rocks in the desert and gave them water as abundant as the seas, like a geyser coming from a flint rock. He brought streams out of a rocky crag and made waters flow down like rivers, quenching the thirst of three million people and all their flocks. But they continued to sin against him. Rebelling in the desert against the Most High. Can you imagine? God provides all this to them, all these things, and they still rebel. That's why I say provisions won't keep you saved. In fact, maybe the worst thing you could ever have is gain and success. Because the moment you become self-sufficient, that's the moment you stop praying. 
you get a pay raise and a better job and everything start working out, you won't go to the altar. You're in trouble. You're down here. I don't always pray blessings on the people. I pray you be saved. <laughs> that sounds kind of hateful. <laughs> but they continue to sin against him. They willfully put God to the test by demanding the food they craved. And here's the question they said. They spoke against God saying, thinking that they were profound in their question. Thinking they were wise in their accusation against God. Can God spread a table in the desert? I want to tell you about the limitations of our brain. You got a limitation in your mind. You think God can't do anything. And the reason why you think God can't do it is because you can't do it. I'll answer that question in a moment. When he struck the rock, water gushed out, streams flowed abundantly. But can he also give us food? Can he supply meat for his people? When the Lord hurt them, Asaph said, he was very angry. His fire broke out against Jacob. His wrath rose against Israel, for they did not believe in God or trust in his deliverance. He, yet he gave a commandment to the skies above and opened the doors of the heavens. He rained down manna for the people to eat, and he gave them grain from heaven. Men ate the bread of angels and he sent them all the food they could eat. Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? <laughs> Let me just tell you the answer to that. He can furnish a table in the worst place of your life. When there's no food and there's no rain and the ground looks empty... He can open up the windows of heaven and pour you out grain and you will eat heavenly food. Here, pastor, today, don't think that God is limited by your sight, by your ability, or by what you see with your natural eye. He's got resources hidden in heaven that, he's, that you have never tapped into. I'll answer the question. God can furnish a table in the wilderness. He can provide water from flint rocks and rivers from stones. I have good news for everybody. Yeah. Nehemiah finished rebuilding all the walls and resetting all the gates in 52 days. It was an impossible task. But I ask you, is there anything too hard for God? And here it is. It does not begin without our confidence in the Lord. We have to have a declaration of the confidence. You have to know that the Lord is on your side and that the Lord is capable and able to put everything together whether it's in your home or if it's for the whole church if it's in your little area of a neighborhood or if it's for the whole county you have to believe that with men things are impossible with God all things are possible you have to come to this declaration I am a blood-bought child of the most high God you have to say it out of your mouth nothing is impossible with God there's nothing too hard for God he can furnish a table in the wilderness he can bring water out of nowhere he can open up the skies stop thinking that everything that's going to come your way is going to come through a natural means it could come through a spiritual work mm. see Nehemiah had a burden because he saw a problem and he knew the vulnerability of the temple the false gods, the free flow, the transient crowds, the nomads who were no less the enemies of Yahweh. And he gathered his people together and he said this. This is what he said because you have to have a declaration. He said, I told them of the hand 
of God, it was good on me. The hand of God is on me. And we're going to do a work for God. So I want to come to tell somebody, the hand of the Lord is upon me. And we are going to do a work for God in our time in this city. I want to tell you, mama, hear me mama, your children are going to come back. It's going to take one day. When they get up that morning and they finally get to that point and they're going to cry out to God, by the end of the day, the work shall be done. I'll tell you why. Because the hand of God is good upon me. And it's good upon you. And it's good upon the church. Ah. He's able. God's able. God is able. His hand is on this house. His hand is on your life. Listen, you came in here today. You're doing good. You're going to make it. You ought to turn to somebody and tell them right now, you are going to make it. Tell them. It doesn't matter how it looks. You're doing good. Tell them right now, you're doing good. Say to somebody, you're going to make it. Come on, say to somebody, you're going to make it. Turn to someone behind you and say, you're going to make it. Come on, turn around and tell you're going to make it. You're not going down. You're not going to be trampled underfoot. And I don't care what it looks like right now. There's going to come a day when God's going to complete his work. And you're going to be shocked and surprised and stand in awe that the work of the Lord has been accomplished in your family and in your life. Hey! I'll tell you when it's darkest. It's darkest right before the dawn. Right before the sun breaks the sky. Right before it becomes light time. Night, night is going to be pressed upon you. But in a single moment. I wrote down about 10 testimonies of the people in this house. That if I could just call you out and let you take the microphone. First of all, I probably would not get the microphone back. But you were going through some things. And in a single day, and in fact in some of your lives, in a single hour, everything that you are battling with changed in the single hour. Now the accuser says, oh no, this is never going to work. The doubter says, I doubt this is going to work. The liar says, it's built on a false pretense. Listen, just because people do things for God doesn't mean that they're full of pride. Ought to be very careful before we decide and denounce someone's life. Because Nehemiah had all of that and more. And I'll tell you how he built the wall. In one hand, the men had the tool of their trade. Trial. The the operation of the cement. And on the other hand, they had a sword. They worked with one hand. And they fought with the other. 
And when the day came and they hung the last gate on its hinge and they closed the gate, something happened in the temple. All of a sudden, true worship and sacrifice broke out. I want to tell everybody here, this is your day. This is your hour. This is your moment. Sometimes we're working and sometimes we're fighting. Sometimes, sometimes we're doing the manual labor and sometimes we're praying and we're seeking God. But we're building a holy habitation for the Lord. And I just preach to anyone who has ears to hear what the word has to say. And I just ask you to stand right now and lift up your hands and just proclaim it. The hand of the Lord is good on me right now. Just say it right now in your own mouth. The hand of the Lord is good upon me right here. The hand of the Lord is good upon me right here. Yes, 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 yes. You can, you can, you can. You're able, Lord. You can, you can. You can. You can furnish a table in the wilderness. You can make an end in a day. I have one last scripture for everybody. It comes from Joel chapter 2 and, and, and verse 25. Right before Joel gives the declaration of an outpouring of the Spirit in the last days. This is what he says. Here's the prophet prophecy. Now we all believe in the prophecy of Joel chapter 2. That in the last days I'll pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Why will we refute the the prophecy just a handful of verses earlier here's what the Lord said and I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten God can give you back time he's going to give you back time everything that the locusts have eaten those years that the locusts consumed your life and messed up your mind God's going to give you time I'm preaching about omnipotent omniscient immutable God that is the almighty God and today he wants to restore your life all you have to do is lift up your heart your hands and make a step toward the Lord he wants to finish what he started in you he wants to finish the thing that he begun in you and he wants to do it in a single day he can change your life this very day